everybody. We are talking about craftivism today. I'm Annie uh, Lee, up in reference. I'm joined by Maureen, Alicia, Elizabeth, and we have a special guest today of Badass Cross Stitch, Shannon Downey. We have her on here because she is the grantor of our microgrant for craftivism, and our library won this grant in order to do a series of craftivism programs. So welcome, Shannon. Thanks. Glad to be here. So um, first question I had was, what made you want to start this grant that you give? I guess you're, it's an annual thing then you're starting. And then as alongside of that, maybe why did you pick us to receive it this year? Great. So this is the second year I've done it. I'll do it again next year. Um, what's fun is each year it's growing as more and more people like see what I'm doing and want to participate, which I think is really cool. So like the first year I did it, I did it because there's so many people with so many brilliant ideas and they don't actually need a lot to get them off the ground. But sometimes $500 is the difference between them being able to do it and not being able to do it. And so I thought, I can pay it forward a little. I'm also really tired of everybody believing that like funding has to come from major institutions or that like there's only one way to sort of fund big ideas mm -hmm. um, and that individuals can do this too. And so I really wanted to sort of like model what that could look like. And I got an unexpected commission and I thought, well, I wasn't expecting this money. I can use this and pay it forward. And so the first year it was um, $500, but then, you know, I hope more importantly, you know, 20 hours of my time over the course of the year as um, to use in whatever way the um, first grantee wanted, whether it was guidance or um, doing workshops or helping edit or fundraise, you know, whatever they wanted. It was 20 hours to use however they wanted. The first year was wonderful because it was the... Um, School of Needlework for Disobedient Women, which is in Appalachia. And they were working with girls age, I think like middle school, basically, um, and doing a two-week summer program so that it was like them getting together to like learn to make, but also learn about feminism and like the history of needlework. And, you know, it's sort of revolutionary in Appalachia because it's, you know, all of the activities are usually tied to church or school. And yeah. so this was an opportunity to like do something outside of those places. So hopefully giving the girls a little more freedom of expression. Um, and so I have a extensive background in teaching and, and in planning. And so um, I was able to help them structure their curriculum and, you know, build out their marketing plans and their curriculum plans and all of that. So it was really great. And it was so great that I was like, well, now I'm doing this every year because there's no way we can stop. And, you know, there's just so many people who apply who have brilliant ideas and I just want to like support as many of them as I possibly can. So this past year, when I said I was doing it, I got two individuals who just reached out to me privately and said, look, I want to throw $250 in, you know, and you do whatever you want with it within this grant. Um, I just want to help. And so we were able to give away $1,000 um, this year and to still offer up, you know, 20 hours of my time. And then um, Corey Williams got involved um, to offer up an hour of like activist coaching. And so like it's starting to grow every year just based on like people seeing that this is valuable and that, you know, we can all find ways to support each other and people's ideas and projects. And so I was so excited. I mean, I got a ton of applications this year, but I was really excited about you all because one, libraries are just like working so hard these days and like <laughs> truly dealing with things that like you shouldn't have to be dealing with. And like, I just think of like I have this T-shirt that I love so much um, from a, a library in Washington. It's like, what's more punk than a public library? And like, I firmly believe that. And I just see libraries as this like final bastion of hope and education. And I just really wanted to work with a library and know that like your entire community would be impacted. You know, it's not just, um, it really could offer up some, opportunities for the entire community um, via the library. So that's what made me excited. 
Thank you. Yeah. Maybe we should um, back up a smidge and talk about what is craftivism and all of that. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think of craftivism as the use of craft or art as a tool within activism. So a lot of my work is around like community organizing through craft and specifically embroidery in a lot of cases, um, because that's my medium. So I use embroidery to like trick people into hanging out with me and, you know, teaching them how to embroider, but then using it as a mechanism for them to start experimenting with their voice, to start taking a stand on things that they care about and like spending time thinking about these different issues and topics and the role that they play, good or bad, and, you know, change that they want to see and things that they can implement. And so I, I see it as like a gateway into activism. And then, you know, my work is always centered on, okay, now how do I help move you along as an activist? And so while the craft and the art is the trickery to get them in to hang out with me and like have these discussions that they probably wouldn't have with strangers in a public space, but then it's like keeping them and giving them all of the tools that they need to continue to evolve as activists. And so that looks like a lot of different things. I mean, I started a program called um, How to Be a Good Human that just came out of like me listening and hearing people say things like at the beginning of 2020, when the rise in xenophobic and anti-Asian, Asian American violence really was on an uptick. I was hearing a lot of people like, oh, I wouldn't know what to do if I saw something happen in public. Like, it's so scary. And I just thought like, oh, we can solve that in 10 minutes. You just need a bystander intervention training. Like, so easy. <laughs> like, then you'll know what to do. And I guarantee you, you'll do it because it's so, there's so many simple solutions here. Um, and so I partnered with Asian Americans Advancing Justice Chicago, and we offered four bystander intervention trainings for free over Zoom and trained like 500 people in bystander intervention trainings that month. And that led to like, oh, what are the other things in the world that like, you know, we learn how to do CPR maybe or the Heimlich, but we don't learn how to reverse a drug overdose. But that seems like something we should know how to do. So I partnered with harm reduction out of New York and we did a Narcan training, just like how do you identify and then reverse a drug overdose, right? And so it's just the art and the, the craft is like the gateway. And then it's like, how do we move them? And then also how can we use these tools to amplify and, you know, whether it be fundraising or awareness or whatever, in order to move whatever issue folks are interested in forward. Thanks, you guys. <laughs> Those are very big um, topics. Our definition was kind of more um, broad, so I could include those big political actions, mm -hmm. but it could also mean just like crafting as self-care or self-expression. And I know that you have always said self-care is the fuel of the resistance. Mm -hmm. So um, do you count like doing something just on your own, in your own room for yourself? Is that craftivism too? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it all comes down to intention. And, you know, I am very careful never to like gatekeep what is craftivism, right? Like I have the way that I handle my work and the way that I think about craftivism. But um, I also think it's wildly expansive and includes, you know, tons of different mediums in my book, which is coming out next year, I can officially say that today <laughs> because I'm allowed to announce it today. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. You know, the second chapter is really like, here are all of these categories of craftivism that I've seen be really effective. And one is like personal growth, self-care, you know, healing. Um, and so I've seen really brilliant work of folks who are using craft as sort of their time to, and, and really this is like the root of how I started in craftivism was like, I was stitching to create digital analog balance in my life because I was just burnt out from being on a device 24 seven running a marketing company. And so I started stitching as a way to like put down my device and forget about it. 
And then as time went on, I started to use it stitching around the different issues that I was working on. And it was really just to give myself the space and time to think substantively about all of those issues that I was working on and like really explore what do I know about this? What don't I know about this? Where did my knowledge come from? Where are the gaps? Like, you know, just sort of all the things that we want to self-examine around when we're working on different issues. And so, you know, obviously that is the root of, you know, my interaction with craftivism. So I absolutely think that that is valid and important. When you look at that, you can think about how even all through the pandemic, we were encouraging craftivism at home anyway, because we were doing kits and giving them out to people who would then have that moment of a break from their stress and their having to be on, you know, Zoom or online for work constantly or for school. And they could just sit down and do something with their hands and just have fun doing that. So I think that when you look back to how we've been using what we can do as a library for our community, we've been perhaps without having the word for it, we have been engaging in craftivism a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And so much came out of the pandemic in terms of this movement and this like way of being, you know, at the very beginning of the pandemic, I thought like, oh, we're going to be in trouble if we don't have outlets for continuing to like meet new people and like stay connected with the people that are outside of our home and outside of whom we work with. Cause we lost all of our like little daily interactions with other humans that are so important to our health and humanity. And so I started hosting what I called a stitch up every Sunday on zoom and it was free and anybody could, you know, zoom in, you know, the intention was that everybody was working on whatever their individual projects were that they were currently working on, but that we would meet new people still and be in community. And it is now three years later, and I still have to host them because it is now like a tiny cult. I mean, there are just hundreds of us around the world who get together and we are deeply important in each other's lives now. And it's really neat to see you know, Americans who end up in London for vacation and they're making time to meet up with the London folks and folks across the country who are traveling to go meet each other in person. And so craft has this incredible power to connect and to bring people together, whether or not you're in the same room or working on the same thing. Like it just, there's really something magical about it that opens doors that I think other things just can't. I think we've also seen in our programs, people making connections to like other generations in their family and mm-hmm. past. Yes. I can't tell you past, yeah. the number of times in my workshop, somebody just starts crying and I'm like, Oh, what's going on? <laughs> and they're just like, I just having all these memories of sitting with my grandmother and her teaching me how to stitch. And I haven't done it since I was a kid. And it's really like bringing me back to her and connecting me with her. And it's so special to like see that and also see people's perspective on these mediums that maybe they blow off these days as like oh, old timey or my grandma used to do that or whatever. And really rethinking their sort of perception of particularly the needle arts. I mean, I did a project called Rita's Quilt, which I was in Mount Prospect at an estate sale and I found this box and it was full of what I thought was supplies, you know, embroidery supplies, but it was actually like a massive embroidered quilt project that had been all set up, but had not been started because she had passed. And I saw it and I was like, oh God, I'm totally going to have to do this, aren't I? (laughs) I couldn't leave it there, you know, there was no way that I was leaving it. And I thought, okay, well, I'll do something with it. Like, I don't even quilt, so I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I can't leave this here. And um, I went on Instagram and I was like, hey, everybody, I found this thing. Does anybody want to help me do it? And within 24 hours, there were over a thousand volunteers. I mean, it was bonkers. I sent a hundred of the squares. Oh, well, they were hexagons, but hundreds of hexagons out across the country to different artists, each one hand embroidered, and got him back to me within like a month and a half. And then we got 40 sewers here in Chicago together. 
And we all got together on the same day and we handpieced the whole top of the quilt. And then the Chicago Modern Quilt Guild got together and they quilted it for us and bound it. And like the millions of people that were watching this story, because I think it was in every press outlet on the planet, but I think a couple reasons. One, it was 2016 and everybody's feeling a little hopeless. And then it was the end of the year. So we were going into the holiday season. And so they were like, oh, this nice story about all these women finishing this quilt. Like this will give hope. <laughs> um, and, you know, and it did. The part that I love the best was that after the project, right? Like as it's finished, I'm getting hundreds of messages and emails from people talking about like, I went into the closet and I pulled out the quilt that my grandmother had made me that I just shoved in there thinking like, who wants this? And now it's like on my bed and I'm thinking about how much work went into it and the artistry and like how much, you know, like love and care. And I'm thinking so differently about this object that I was so dismissive of. And now I realize like, it's a valuable historical artifact from one of my ancestors. And I can't believe that I dismissed it like that, you know? So it just, it's really fun to sort of like be able to have these moments and interventions that really force people to rethink um, their relationship to these mediums. Do any of you guys want to talk about what we've been doing at the library? I like how everyone's looking at me. So yeah, I'll talk about porn. Um, <laughs> So going off and like changing the way that people think about fiber arts, um, one of the projects that the library has been working on for really, I feel like all summer um, has been collecting plastic shopping bags and then plastic sleeves from newspapers from staff and then turning them into plarn, which is plastic yarn that you tie, like you cut the bags into strips and then you tie them all together. And one bag gives you about nine yards of plarn. So it does make a lot of material to work with. And then we've been making these, they're not coin purses, but they're a little bit bigger than that. And they're kind of easy to make in like just an hour or two. So we've been working on that. And then I made a larger rainbow plarn bag over the summer just because I was like, I think I have enough to do this. And the hardest color to find was the green because they don't make that color as much. But I think it's an interesting project because it forces you to slow down and think about how much like plastic waste we have in our lives and how much of it is just so ubiquitous we don't think about it very often. And there's actually a really cool project called Toxic Reef at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. And these two crochet artists crocheted a giant reef sculpture to really bring attention to all the plastic that's in the oceans. And there have been several other installations with like a similar theme. And so I always think it's really interesting that some people I know who make plarn will like make plarn from bags they find when they're like hiking or they're like taking walks around the neighborhood. Um, and so they'll make plarn from that. But yeah, I think that's kind of interesting because some people who come to the programs have known how to crochet and some are just picking it up for the first time. So it's been really fun to have patrons connect with like a new project. So are you're also teaching them how to crochet if they don't know how? Yes. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> It can be. I would need like a four week class, but cool. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, well, learning how to plarn takes maybe 15 minutes. So I'm like, oh, you need to learn how to crochet. All right. Here's how we can do this. I'll do my best. <laughs> That's fantastic. You've been awesome. Cause yeah, especially with some like me, I, I was a problem child with learning. I don't know if I still get it, but I think the concept is really cool. All of these things that we've done too, I'm always amazed. Like, who was the first caveman or whatever to come up with crocheting? It's so ingenious. Like, I think that is interesting because when you think about like crocheting and knitting, it's all like weaving in a certain way and using a different tool. And that's just fascinating because, yeah, somebody sat down one day, some random long ago person was kind of like, hmm, what can I, you know? And so when you think about that and, then as it's come around and around through generations, like it used to be such a, you know, young ladies must learn this. And now it's like, <laughs> you know, not as taught, but it's also now it's like a Maureen has to teach everyone. So they know <laughs> nobody's churning their butter, you know, <laughs> new hobby, <laughs> let go of the butter churn. The youth services department, I really had to kind of run it around in my head. Like, how do we, create a kind of an environment that we could say we're doing some craftivism and we haven't branded anything as craftivism, but I'd like to think that 
ours has been a lot of recycling because I truly believe that kids and families, sometimes they need a little nudge, like you can do this at home and you can use what you have. And so um, I want to say, and I think everybody here could probably agree with me, we have collected thousands of paper towel tubes. (laughs) I put a big box in the um, staff lounge and they just get tossed in there when people have ones that are ready. And we use them. We use them for craft projects. One of our librarians uses them to hold things when she makes kits and she'll like fold the ends down and make cute little packages. And so that's kind of been our thing. When I do a craft with the kids, if it's something that I can throw in a little like eco education on or something, I do that as well because like we were doing a ladybug craft out on the um, library square for chalk day. And I was telling all the kids, because some of them would be like, I don't like bugs. And so (laughs) ladybugs are so important. They help us. They eat the other insects that aren't nice, you know, like, because I think when you tell kids facts like that, they go tell somebody else they can't help themselves. And then that person either already knew it or they have to go look it up because they're like, you can't know what you're talking about, child. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that's really important. But yeah, for the kids, it's been a lot of recycling and a lot of trying to, we are also, I think we have all been talking about zine programs in our group email and we have a kit um, for family reading night that focuses on community And so we picked a zine craft for families to do together. Fabulous. I love a zine. It's our, like, they can be the best activists, really. Yeah, because you don't even have to tell them they're doing it. They're just like, go tell the world this new thing I learned. And I think that, yeah, they have the enthusiasm before anybody squashes it. They can really get it out there. Yeah. Yeah, they're not jaded yet. (laughs) I guess to touch in the recycling part, this past summer, we had an egg drop event where it was both adults and children, though a lot of children. And so you could get a lot of different materials and recycle. And you're trying to like craft a design to like hold an egg while we throw it off of our balcony. And so one of the winning designs was based off of Maureen's Plarn event. Cool. (laughs) They just wrap it in Plarn. What'd they do? (laughs) Oh, well, I think that was like the staff was testing a couple different designs. So my friend was like, can you make me something that a parachute could go on? And I was like, I'll do just the thing. So I made like a smaller, like basically like plant holder type thing out of the plarn. And then I just crocheted like ends coming out of it so that the parachute could attach to it. Um, And it survived two drops. (laughs) That's impressive. (laughs) Really smart. But, you know, because that... It creates, it's cushy, but it's also like cushier than just fabric uh, crochet, like a, you know, so. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't think <laughs> I think I did that while we were on like a staff field trip. And I think it took me 10 minutes on the bus. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> Our people are really way more into it than we had expected. So one of the past things we did was visible mending. Uh, we have a room that fits 20. We actually had to move rooms because we got almost 40 people to show up and they all wanted to learn how to mend their clothes and belongings that they already own. We also just did sewing pillowcases. And though our space in our program was limited, so many people wanted to do it from home that we have now almost 60 finished pillowcases to give to Ryan's case for smiles for hospitalized kids. So. Um, incredible yeah yeah they wanted to just do it from home and use their own supplies and time and submit it heck yeah (laughs) plus i came in uh, for pride month and taught the embroidery craftivism workshop and that was so much fun what an awesome group of humans oh my god i had a great time even though i I know um (laughs) yeah the people in that program they're still stitching they're still embroidering this is how we get them to the dark side. We just bring them <laughs> once. So once you do it, everybody's in. That's so great. It sounds like you guys have done fantastic things this year with the money and the the resources. And um, obviously the community is benefiting tremendously from it. So that's awesome. Makes me happy. I saw you had a question, Alicia, that mentioned what kind of things that we would have liked to do. One thing I, I was thinking is like those fidget quilts. Yes, that's something I would have liked to do. 
But that also, now that Amy is like, <laughs> and you guys are starting to become pros at sewing, this could be a thing we could do in like maybe the next year or so. <laughs> what is that? Fidget quilt? Um, that fidget quilt or variety, I guess. Like if people need to like fidget around if they have the excess energy or they have. Oh, like a fidget spinner, but a quilt firm. Yes. <laughs> oh, cool. So are they small? They're lap size, I think. Yeah, okay. lap size, not not too big. Yeah, dig. And a lot of the, I think some of the audience is also like elderly people. Yes. For like their sensory <laughs> stimulation. That's awesome. Zippers and things to tie and just mess around with. <laughs> oh, I get it. So you're putting like buttons on and like things that you can play with and make noise or whatever. Yes. <laughs> I like that. Plus that gives an opportunity to upcycle stuff, you know, because there's so many just found objects that you could attach and reuse that's great we kind of missed the train as april passed but autism awareness month and i this is something i learned that the puzzle piece is not really the preferred symbol so i was thinking about a puzzle craft and then we were going to shift to something that was going to use the preferred the rainbow um ribbon yeah yeah you taught me that infinity or the yeah the ribbon yeah so that might be something for next year to Rates awareness. Yeah. A good thing with some of this is, and most of it, is there's always time to do it. It's just that, you know, we only had a year this first year. And I think that because we're so interested in it, we won't ever really stop trying to find ways to encourage it in the community and bring what we know. And it may have also, because we researched what to do, we found some fun projects along the way that we can add into our to-do list of how can we plan further out? Yeah, I wanted to do um, those little like bee hotel things with the bamboo when they can oh, go. So cool. But yeah. I also, they're so fun. And, but I read so many contradictory like pieces of information. It's good. It's not good. It's that it became too overwhelming at the time. And I just thought I'll hold off on this until I can find out more. I'm always interested in keeping like the bee population healthy and growing. So I know that somebody did seed bombs, didn't they, from yeah. your department? Yeah. Those are fun because they're easy. Mm-hmm. It's that kind of gorilla kindness and <laughs> yeah, environmental. <laughs> but yeah, going along, I think in the beginning with the plan, we had wanted to do like sleeping mats for homeless and we called around the homeless shelters near us. And they were kind of like, oh, we have extras of those left from a donation and we really don't need that. So we switched it because we really don't want to think that we're doing something do-gooderly, that we're not actually helping anyone. Like one of the thing we do to be actually wanted and welcome. Yeah, right? that's a huge part of this is like not just creating or moving forward with what you think people need, but doing the research and asking the questions to find out what is actually needed and then showing up in the ways that you are needed or with the items that you are needed. So I think that's fantastic point. And that, you know, that you did that thing where it was like, let's not just assume (laughs) and like create all of these materials that somebody are going to get and think, Great, now I have to find a place to put these things, you know? Like, it reminds me of the penguin sweaters. Do you remember that one? There was this whole, like, we need sweaters for penguins for some reason. I can't, I think there was an oil spill or something. And people just made all of these penguin sweaters. And then the organization was like, what, we don't want the, like, please stop. (laughs) You know, like, there might have been a reason why they needed, like, 10 of them. And, you know, and then hundreds and thousands of people were like making these penguin sweaters because it went online and it seemed like, you know, a fun, cute, like who doesn't want to make a penguin sweater, but like, you know, it became one of those, like, please stop sending us these. (laughs) What to do with them? Like there aren't even enough penguins in the world to wear all these sweaters. (laughs) Really? It is important to, um, to do that research and ask those questions. So good job. The really cool thing, though, is that because Maureen has taught all these people to make plarn and crochet, if we ever did get a call from one of the shelters and they said, you know, we remember you had talked about doing this and we really could use, you know, a hundred of these, then we know that we taught, we gave these people the tools to do it. 
And we also know that I can collect a disturbing amount of plastic bags at my house. And I had to laugh because I turned a bunch in. And then the next day we got an email that said they weren't collecting them anymore. And I was like, that's it. I did it. (laughs) They were You broke them. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Um, So Shannon, what social media outlets or tags do you recommend to like follow to learn more about craftivism or to follow some favorite crafters? Yeah, I mean, hashtag craftivism, that's a big one. There's a lot going on over there. And hashtag art activism or artivist, right, is another term that people use for their art activism. You know, there's so many people who are doing really cool things. I'm like super amped about this weekend. If y'all don't know, I don't know when this podcast will come out, if it'll be after this weekend. But do you know that little Amal is in coming to Chicago? Do you know a little Amal? So Amal is this 12-foot puppet, um, and it is by a puppet company in South Africa, and she's um, a Syrian refugee. And so she's walked all over the world and is now walking across the United States to raise money and awareness about youth refugees and to support all of their needs. And I just think it's one of the most beautiful pieces of craftivism I've ever seen. And she will be in Chicago for like four days starting later this week and at Maggie Daly Park on Saturday. She's continuing to walk across. I think she's in Detroit right now and she's walking across the whole country. This is what I love is seeing all of these new, like incredible things that people are coming up with as a way to use art to activate community and activate action, um, you know, inspire action. So Amal is just my new favorite one. But, uh, you know, there's so many rad people even just around here. Like we look at William Estrada, who's doing incredible things. We can look at Project Fire. We can look at, I mean, there's just, there's hundreds of folks who are doing amazing things. And I'm doing my best to round them all up because I really feel like we need to have some sort of epic event. (laughs) And so I'm just constantly gathering them up and we're going to do something big next year. It's going to be great. So I'll make sure everybody knows about it so y'all can come. Yay! (laughs) Field trip! (laughs) Oh, how did the project for it? We know there was another grant winner. How did their project turn out? Oh my gosh. I can't stand how cute it is. Um, Y'all won the big grant. This other project that came in, I like couldn't say no. So I was like, whatever, I'll just find a way to fund this. And so it's a young person from Alaska who's non-binary and wanted to do a sticker project to fundraise for the queer community in their area of Alaska I mean, it is, it's just been so fun working with this young person and like learning about them and like helping. I haven't actually had to do much in terms of like their sticker action is on point and they have designed all sorts of cool stuff. And now we're talking about, you know, like how do we structure pricing and like how do we bundle these? And we're having these really fun conversations around like the business side of how do we turn this into a fundraiser? And so we are at the point where I did a little fundraiser just through my newsletter and we were able to raise enough money to fund the purchase of all of the stickers and ephemera and the designs are done. And so we should be able to be selling them within the next month. Um, And, you know, that's just the launch and then we'll just keep selling them um, in order to continue to fundraise for the organizations that they want to support in their community. We had to pause a little bit because they went to space camp. So, (laughs) I mean, this person's such a badass. And so, and they're, you know, transitioning into a new school, which I think counts as high school. And so it's just been really fun to also have to remember that like, oh, right, you are a young person who like (laughs) has to go to a new school and how terrifying that must be. And so... We'll get around to the stickers as soon as your first couple weeks are over. And so it's just been really sweet and very fun. And um, I'm excited to be able to get those out into the world and and start um, supporting them, supporting their community. So it's going to be really cool. That's so great because at that age, I think we all remember not really thinking we had any idea how to do anything with mm-hmm. our like creativity and to know that 
number one, they're using it for activism. And number two, like they found someone to help mentor them further into the process. I mean, that's wonderful. That's really great. And I'm excited too to see what, what happens next. It's been good food for my soul. You know, it just keeps hope alive when you're like, okay, we're going to be fine. Yeah. The kids are all right. They're going to save us. (laughs) They shouldn't have to, but they will. (laughs) You have any surprises in your experience teaching or organizing? Or I guess this is a separate question, but any like craft fails? (laughs) I fail all the time. What? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I fail all the time. I'm a firm believer in like, once you have an idea, like 30% baked, you put it out there because it's enough that people can sort of get where you're trying to do, but it's not so far along that you have to undo things to accommodate for everybody's needs and ideas. At 30%, everybody can step in and like help you make it awesome, right? Like, cause you're like, all right, here's the idea. What am I missing? And then, you know, I just let everybody else make it amazing. But when you come out with ideas at 30%, (laughs) there's a guarantee that half of those are duds. (laughs) So I fail all the time. And sometimes that means I just abandon the thing. And sometimes that means that I have to like retreat back and figure out like what wasn't working and why. And is that a reason to stop or is it a reason to pivot and keep going? And I think a good example is like with, Badass Herstory, which is one of my long-term projects that is a global community project. Like anyone of a marginalized gender can submit to this project. And I did so much work laying the groundwork for this. And like, I really felt like it was a super important project because in these workshops and they, you know, my workshops predominantly speak to women and, and folks of marginalized genders. So I'm sort of like, you know, that's the crowd that I'm always in. And I was hearing so much like things like I've never made art about myself before, or I've never made a piece for me. Like I've been knitting my entire life, but I knit and gift, knit and gift, right? Like I've never actually made anything for myself, you know? And so I'm hearing all these things. I'm like, I really feel like maybe what we need is a project where folks have to center themselves and like really explore their own story and like allow themselves the time and space to take up that space and really put themselves in the center of their story and see what happens. I remember that I was like telling somebody this and and one of the, the people I was telling was a white man and and he was like, Shannon, we're all the heroes of our own story. And like all of the women just looked at him and they were like, hmm, <laughs> like that is your lived experience, but that is certainly like Generally, we're supporting characters. And so, you know, like this is an important concept and project to center. But when I launched it, I thought like this is going to be great. You know, I just finished up a gun violence project where with very little effort, hundreds and thousands of people from around the world submitted pieces. And like it was a fundraiser and it it was an incredible result. And so I thought, okay, great. Now we're going to segue into Fattest History. This is, we got all this momentum. This is going to be great. And I dropped it. It was like a needle scratch. Like needle was off the record. It wasn't even scratching it. And I was like, what is going on? Like, what is this weird resistance to this? And the prompt is, tell me your story. And you have to do it in a 12 by 12 piece of fabric. I don't care the like what you do on the fabric. Any medium is welcome as long as it's on a 12 by 12 piece of fabric. And um, so many folks were just like, I don't even know where to start. This is an overwhelming prompt. It's an overwhelming question. And so I really stepped away from it for a minute and dove into that. Okay, like, do I need to make it thematic? Do I need to change? Is this just a bad project? Should I let it go? And I was like, no, (laughs) I, I just need to support them better. And I need to double down on this because their response to it as it being like too big and too overwhelming demonstrates how needed and important it is. And so it has been the slowest build of anything I've ever done in my entire life. (laughs) But 
it is transformational. And I watch people have these transformational experiences in doing it. And so many of them, it takes six months to a year, you know, for people to make these pieces. It's not a quick one. And then I'm asking them to give them to me, right? So you just like spilled your guts for six months and did all of this work. And then I'm asking you to trust me to like hand it off to me and let me show the world what you've done. And so, you know, it's one of those, it's not a fail. It is so slow, but I think it's still so important that I I sort of have forced it to keep going. But if we were judging success based on like how quickly and how many, you know, the, the gun project blew everything else out of the water <laughs> compared to this. And I think that's also a testament, right? Because gun violence is something that people care about, but it's also, you know, oh, I can do this because it's not about me, but it's something I care deeply about and I can contribute. But when I'm asking you to slow everything down and really center and focus yourself and spend a, a lot of time basically working on your story, that's when people sort of choke up. And that's why I think it's so important that I keep doing it, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, I fail all the time. It's great. I mean, I don't even look at it as fails. I'm just like, that that didn't work. What's next? You know, like, what about that didn't work? I'm constantly learning. You learn from every single one that you do and every approach and attempt. And so I think it's quite fun when it doesn't work sometimes because one, it's funny, right? Like it becomes a story and you're like, I can't believe I tried to make iPad puppies a thing, but I sure did. <laughs> you know, like that's a URL I owned for like two years because I was going to make it a thing. I didn't make it a thing, y'all. I just lost $24 in that deal. <laughs> but like, it's the constant ideation that keeps the creative level high, that keeps you being able to like come up with the ones that do work. So I think you always have to keep that creativity moving and going and, and not judge anything too harshly when it doesn't work and just learn from it and keep going. I love that, you know. Everything you said kind of like sparked all these different things that I thought about. I don't know if any of you have read the story of art without men. It is so good. It's like a recent nonfiction book. And in it, they I kind of knew, but I didn't know to the extent that craftivism and craft and art, like how much it was related to feminism and how fraught the history is. I read about these women who were master painters, but sometimes they would get their work co-opted or like just plain stolen and written over with a man's signature or things like that. So they did kind of rebel by painting themselves as characters in the painting or secretly painting miniature like portraits of themselves into the art. And I thought that was so, so cool. Well, and it's interesting too, like how we categorize what is art and what is craft and specifically like the fiber arts, you know, like the fact that we call them arts at this point is progress, right? Because it was always just sort of like functional objects, craft, you're just decorating things, you know, and like that is all rooted in, you know, misogyny, right? Because these are all traditional women's crafts or women's mediums. It's so interesting. That's why I look at what I do now as subversive, right? Like it's really reclaiming these mediums elevating them in our own vocabulary and minds to art because they are and really forcing people to or inviting people if you will to um to think differently about all of these like why is this medium considered more fine art versus this like i've seen quilts that would blow your mind that like you can't even imagine they're even sewn you know, and they're just like, oh, nice craft, you know, as though craft is less than art, right? And so then there's that hierarchy that we have to confront is like, it's so, it's so much. <laughs> and it's like, there's so much, you know, as you stated, history that all of this is rooted in. And so I do think of my part of my work as really a subversive take on, on these mediums for that reason. 
Well, I have a question from Maureen, but she's not here anymore, but she might be able to listen to it later. It's kind of off topic because I know you just recently moved back towards Chicago area. She was asking about upcycling and design. If you had any renovation tips (laughs) that you could share. Um, (laughs) I love to upcycle and repurpose everything. My new favorite one is I go to estate sales. Like I always try to find the estates, like my dream estate sale is like, an elderly single woman who like (laughs) lived alone, but lived in this house for like 50 or 60 years. Right. And then ended up being the last one standing because, oh my God, like it's heaven for me. And, and, you know, these folks always keep all of the tablecloths and napkins that they had hand embroidered in the forties and fifties. Right. Cause that was really hot then is that you decorate and you put so much work into these, functional objects that you would use, napkins, tablecloths, tea towels, all of that. And you can get them for like a dollar at these estate sales, which like guts me, but also yay me. (laughs) So I've been buying up all of these vintage napkins and tablecloths. I've made two sets of curtains out of the tablecloths, right? Because they're just gorgeous. And all you got to do is throw a pipe pocket in there and hang them. And then suddenly... There are these spectacular vintage um, curtains, that's the word. Uh, And now I'm working on a pretty epic set of curtains for my front room because my front room's all windows. And so I'm working with all of the napkins and like piecing them together and sewing them together in order to create like a whole series of very fancy (laughs) curtains with all of my estate sale finds. So that's my hot take right now. That is what I'm what I'm working on. I also never recommend buying old embroidery floss at estate sales. I've learned that there is a time life and there is a limit to those. Yeah. But what I do do sometimes, because you you buy things in bulk, right? And um usually they just want to get rid of the floss. So they're like, here. And I'm like, ugh, stupid old floss. <laughs> it's not gonna work. But If you take water-soluble fabric stabilizer, okay, so it looks a little like saran wrap, and you lay it, and then you cut up all the floss, and you lay it on top of it, and then you put another layer of stabilizer on top of that, and then you run it under your machine, just like constant, over and over and over and over, until it's all like stitched together, and then you soak it in water, and the stabilizer disappears, and you have like a new piece of fabric that you can work with. And it's just like, it looks really cool and it could be a standalone piece on the wall. It's that cool, but you can also, you know, embroider over it and really turn it into something like pretty epic. So those are the two like geeky ones. Plus like I buy as much old furniture as I possibly can. And like, I pay people to reupholster it because I do not have that skill set yet. But, um, you know, like I can paint a thing and I can make it look really cool. So <laughs> That's what I've done in this apartment, right? I've been here like a month and a half. It looks like I've been here for six years. (laughs) I'm just like, it's important to nest. We got to get it all set up so that I feel good here. That's great. Thank you. Of course. I am curious about, do you have a title for your book? Yes. Are you ready? Yes. Let's move the needle. (laughs) Honey. I love it. Invitation. You know, I like that. I kept saying like, this book's never going to get published if I don't have the perfect title because I'll never put it out there. Like I have to have a good title, otherwise forget about it. And um, I don't know, six months ago, somebody said like, well, what do you do? And I'm like, we're just always trying to move the needle. We're always just trying to push the needle. We're moving the needle. And I was like, that's so funny because I didn't mean it like stitching, stitching, but now all right, that's it. And then for a while, it was like, move the needle. And then I was like, that's like a demand. It's a statement. Like, I want this to be an invitation. Everything I do is like community invitation. Like, and so that's where the let's move the needle came in. Because I was like, yeah, we're all going to work together to do this. So that is the title. And it will be out next year. Story is publishing it. Congrats. Thank you. I'm so excited. And then how can people who are interested get involved with her story or any of your projects? Yeah, my website is chock full of goodness. It's badasscrossstitch.com. And it's everything from like tons of free tutorials to 
patterns that you can download to community projects you can engage with to all of the community projects I'm doing that people can get involved in. If anybody wants to take a workshop with me or show up at something that I'm doing, my event calendar has all of that on there. So it really is everything. And then I put out a newsletter once a month. One is going out today, dun, 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 with the big book announcement. Hello. And they can sign up for that on my website as well. And that one's always, it's full of stuff you can do, resources, patterns, announcements, all the good stuff. And then, of course, on the Instagram where I live, Badass Cross Stitch. <laughs> That's almost the only social media I have left. So, yeah. <laughs> got unceremoniously kicked off of Twitter. So, <laughs> we'll stick with Instagram now. Do you want to do a little fun lightning round now? Sure. Are hey. you gonna throw questions at me? Yeah. Yeah. Just like, don't think too hard. Just go. Okay. Stream of consciousness. Look out. (laughs) You like dogs or cats? Oh, dogs. Pancakes or waffles? Waffles. Favorite day of the week? Friday. Favorite city in the U.S.? Chicago. (laughs) Oh, on a scale of one to ten, how much do you like garlic? Oh, (laughs) ten. What's your favorite pasta shape? Oh, now you've given me one. Um, Orchetti. Okay. On that line, uh, favorite comfort food? Oh, macaroni and cheese, always. Favorite season? Fall. Nacho flavor, Doritos or nacho or Cool Ranch? Cool Ranch, hands Mm -hmm. down. And what was your last Halloween costume? Bob Ross. Nice. (laughs) it It was exceptional. I scared myself a little. Like I sent my brother a picture and he's like, oh, you look just like me. That's terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) You did the beard and everything. Oh, yeah. The wig, the beard, the outfit, the palette. I had it all. It was great. Do you know what your next one is? Halloween costume? I don't. Normally I plan out months in advance because Halloween is my favorite holiday. Um, But with moving back to Chicago and the chaos of starting the semester, I haven't given it enough time yet, but don't worry. October 1st is like the last day (laughs) that I will wait on this one. How about preferred type of milk? Ooh, oat. Ooh, that's a good one. When people stand up for a standing ovation, are you usually one of the earlier people to stand up or one of the later? Yeah, I'm always first. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, you're back in Chicago. What's the sound you'd make when you're freezing cold? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for humoring me. Oh my God, that was great. I loved it. <laughs> I like how readily you had that sound. Right? Like, That's yeah. my unpleasing sound. Get me out of here. But <laughs> <laughs> you also were in a cold place before. It's but. true. I was in Massachusetts and oh. um, it's cold there too. So mm-hmm. whatever, I'm used to this. I say I'm used to this. And then every year I'm like, why? Why? I just plan a lot of trips for the winter to warm places. <laughs>